0: The following special programming is a presentation of the Radio Talking Book Network in Omaha, Nebraska.
1: Well, hi, everybody, and a very pleasant good day to you, wherever you may be. I'm your host, Michael Fouch. So pull up a chair and spend the next hour with us for this special tribute the wonderful game of baseball is alone among team sports in its refusal of the clock it tells its own time in outs and innings really it's a game of pauses and best of all lucky for us long enough pauses for conversation for shared memories for storytelling and in those pauses in that anticipation of the action As a fan watches fielders get ready before the pitch, there's a pause in the game while the pitcher gets set, the hitter digs in, and the fielders go into total relaxation. They wait. Then just before the pitch, they go into their crouch. They're ready for the ball to be hit their way, even if it isn't. It's this beautiful, coiled expectation. They're ready for what hasn't happened. And that's where Vin Scully lived. Baseball's finest storyteller passed away at age 94, August 2nd. Once upon a time, Vin Scully said during one of his broadcasts over his 67 years in the game, Football is to baseball as blackjack is to bridge, one is the quick jolt, the other the deliberate, slow-paced game of skill but never was a sport more ideally suited to television than baseball. It's all there in front of you, it's theater, really. The star is the spotlight on the mound, the supporting cast fanned out around him, the mathematical precision of the game moving with the kind of inevitability of Greek tragedy with the Greek chorus in the bleachers. Well that was Vin Scully, our narrator, our storyteller, the best that ever was. Storyteller? Why, just be patient, we'll come back to that. But for now, let's start our story now way back when. On October 2nd, 1936, a skinny eight-year-old red-headed boy walked past a laundromat and noticed the score of the New York Yankees pulverizing the New York Giants 18-4 in Game 2 of the World Series. The boy, himself a New York native, took pity on the Giants that day and out of kindness perhaps became a fan of that team. That was the day Vin Scully fell in love with baseball. As a kid, Scully used to crawl under the speakers of his family's four-legged radio set. He loved the spark of the announcer's voice coming through the speaker from some far-off stadium, imagining himself in that crowd surrounded by its happy roar. He was born for his profession, dreaming at an early age of one day becoming himself one of those voices coming from the console. After graduating from Fordham University, where he was an outfielder for the baseball team, his dream took shape. You know, though, the Hall of Fame baseball announcer actually made his debut calling a college football game at Fenway Park. It was November 12, 1949 in Boston and Scully was just a 21-year-old looking to break into broadcasting after graduating from Fordham. A special circumstance had helped him land the job of calling the game at Fenway Park between then-undefeated Boston University and 5-1 Maryland. At first, Ernie Harwell, later the longtime announcer of the Detroit Tigers, had been given the game at Fenway, but he was reassigned to call the North Carolina Notre Dame game at Yankee Stadium when the original broadcaster fell ill. Scully was given the task of heading to Boston by another famous Dodgers announcer, Red Barber, who was then the sports director for CBS Radio. According to Barber, he only remembered Scully by the color of his hair. They were both redheads. Barber asked his producer for the name of that red-haired kid he'd brought in. He didn't know. He'd asked around and nobody knew. Then he remembered that he said he attended Fordham. So Barber called the Fordham Athletic Director and that's how he got Scully's name and number. Having landed the job in Boston, Scully was simultaneously looking forward to attending a dance that night at Boston College, since Fordham was playing there on the same day. As a result, He decided to leave his warmer clothing at the hotel so that he would be unencumbered later at the dance. Scully assumed that he would be warm in a broadcasting booth, but then was naive and maybe a little dumb. Why, I'm going to be working for a network. I'll have a big booth. This proved to be a mistaken belief when he was shown to his place on the roof, as there were no free seats in the press booths. Forced to call the game while sitting at a table outside and exposed to the cold, Scully calmly pressed on with the broadcast. By the end of the afternoon, his call received the majority of CBS's attention as the Boston University-Maryland matchup lived up to the hype. The other games started falling by the wayside, but his game was terrific, but it also got dark. The wind was blowing off the Charles River, the lights were on, and he's freezing. He'd never felt so cold in his life. All he could do was warm his ungloved hands by the light bulb at the engineer's table. After Maryland won the game 14-13, to 13, Scully climbed off the roof under the impression that he'd made little of his big chance. Shackled by the cold, he thought, Here he was given this golden opportunity but felt he'd blown his chance. And yet it was the cold that ended up making a positive impression on Barber, who would one day hire him to work for the Dodgers. An official from Boston University called Barber afterward apologizing for making the CBS broadcaster sit on the roof in the cold. Barber hadn't known until then and was impressed that Scully had maintained his professionalism despite the adverse circumstances, never once complaining about the conditions up there. That gave CBS an extra measure of appreciation for the boy. The next week, Barber assigned Scully to call the Harvard-Yale game. What had seemed like a bad break actually turned out to be the thing that propelled him on his way to stardom. And when Harwell left the Dodgers broadcasting team to work for the New York Giants, Barber remembered Scully. He was hired as Brooklyn's number three announcer, an appealing young green pea, as Barber said and broadcast his first Dodgers game the next April. In 1953, at the age of 25, he became the youngest person to broadcast a World Series game between the Dodgers and the New York Yankees. Scully would go on to call 25 World Series games, 21 no-hitters, and three perfect games in his decorated career, and one time it was all three at once. On October 8, 1956, it was Scully behind the microphone when Don Larson threw a perfect game in Game 5 of the World Series at Yankee Stadium.
2: Well, all right, let's all take a deep breath as we go to the most dramatic ninth inning in the history of baseball.
1: The transistor radio went mainstream at about the same time the Dodgers left their longtime home in Brooklyn and arrived in Los Angeles in 1958, timing so fortuitous that Scully called it one of the biggest breaks the team and its broadcasters could get. For their first four seasons in Los Angeles, the Dodgers played in the cavernous LA Coliseum, a baseball field crammed into one corner of the large football field, with some fans so far removed from the action they needed Scully to let them know what was happening. You might've been sitting high above one end zone with home plate near the other one. The Dodgers brought the major leagues to Southern California fans. Now, they knew the stars, Willie Mays and Stan Musial, but they didn't know the rank and file players. The Dodgers, brought to you by Vin Scully. In 1960, just for fun, Scully made a request that demonstrated his reach and power. On the broadcast one night, he happened to notice in the game notes that it happened to be the birthday of umpire Frank Sicori. So Scully asked fans at the game to await his count to three, then shout, Happy Birthday, Frank!" If fans at the game were not listening in any great numbers, Scully could have been embarrassed. Instead, Seekery nearly jumped out of his skin by the loud greeting. That was the night Vin Scully realized that, if used very carefully, the transistor radio could be a great bridge between himself and the fans. When Dodger Stadium opened in 1962, you could walk into the stadium device in hand. That device let you do exactly one thing, listen to the radio. And that's what everybody did for decades. In the greatest communal experience in Southern California sports history, tens of thousands of fans assembled in one place, listening on a tiny radio as the greatest broadcaster in baseball history described the game being played right in front of them. You could get up from your seat to get a hot dog But you would not miss a pitch, and not because you could pick up the game on a television monitor. So many people had a transistor radio on. It was as if Scully's voice walked with you to the concession stand. One night, those fans at the stands at Dodger Stadium were on the edge of their seats, as Vin Scully's ad-lib description of the action on the field has been elevated to literature. Sandy Colfax walked out to the mound
2: to pitch. A fateful ninth, where he turned in a no-hitter. But tonight, September the 9th, 1965, he made the toughest walk of his career, I'm sure, because through eight innings he has pitched a perfect game. He has struck out 11, he has retired 24 consecutive batters, and the first man he will look at is catcher Chris Cruz, big right-hand hitter. Fly to center, grounded to short. Dick Triszewski is now at second base and Colfax ready and delivers curveball for a strike <laughs> oh and one the count to Chris Krug out on deck to pinch hit is one of the men we mentioned earlier as a possible Joey Amalfitano here's the strike one pitch to Krug fastball swung on and missed strike two you can almost taste the pressure now. Koufax lifted his cap, ran his fingers through his black hair, then pulled the cap back down, fussing at the bill. Cruz must feel it, too, as he backs out, heaves a sigh, took off his helmet, put it back on, and steps back up to the plate. Trusiewski is over to his right to fill up the middle. Kennedy is deep to guard the line. The slight two pitch on the way. Fastball outside, ball one. Krug started to go after it and held up and Torborg held the ball high in the air trying to convince Vargo but he said no sir. One and two the count to Chris Krug. It is 9.41 p.m. on September the 9th. The one-two pitch on the way. Curveball. Tap foul. Off to the left of the plate. The Dodgers defensively. In the spine tingling moment Sandy Koufax and Jeff Torborg the boys who will try and stop anything hit their way. Wes Parker, Dick Trusiewski, Maury Wills, and John Kennedy. The outfield of Lou Johnson, Willie Davis, and Ron Fairley. And there's a 29,000 people in the ballpark and a million butterflies. 29,139 pay. Gofax into his windup and the 1-2 pitch. Fastball foul back out of play. In the Dodger dugout, Al Ferrara gets up and walks down near the runway, and it begins to get tough to be a teammate and sit in the dugout and have to watch. Sandy, back of the rubber, now toes it, all the boys in the bullpen straining to get a better look as they look through the wire fence in left field. One and two, the count to Chris Cruz. Koufax, feet together. to is wind up in the one-two pitch. Fastball outside. Ball two. A lot of people in the ballpark now are starting to see the pitches with their heart. The pitch was outside. Torborg tried to pull it over the plate, but Vargo, an experienced umpire, wouldn't go for it. Two and two. The count to Chris Cruz. Sandy reading signs into his wind-up, 2-2 two, two pitch. Fastball got him swinging. Sandy Koufax has struck out 12. He is two outs away from a perfect game. Here is Joe Amalfitano to pinch it for Don Kessinger. Joe Amal Fatano is from Southern California, from San Pedro. He was an original bonus boy with the Giants. Joey's been around, and as we mentioned earlier, he has helped to beat the Dodgers twice, and on deck is Harvey Keen. Kennedy is tight to the bag at third. The fastball is strike. Oh and one with one out in the ninth inning, one to nothing Dodgers. Sandy Reading into his windup up in the strike one pitch. Curve ball, tap, foul, and 2 And Amalfitano walks away and shakes himself a little bit and swings the bat. And Koufax with a new ball takes a hitch at his belt and walks behind the mound. I would think that the mound at Dodger Stadium right now is the loneliest place in the world. Sandy fussing, puts in to get his sign. 0 2 to Amalfatano. The strike two fits to Joe. Fast forward, swung on and missed strike three. He is one out away from the promised land. And Harvey Keene is coming up. is batting for Bob Henley. The time on the scoreboard is 9.44. The date, September the 9th, 1965. And Koufax working on veteran Harvey Keene. Sandy into his windup and the pitch of fastball for a strike. He has struck out, by the way, five consecutive batters. And that's gone unnoticed. Sandy ready in the strike one pitch. Very high, and he lost his hat. He really forced that one. That's only the second time tonight where I have had the feeling that Sandy threw instead of pitch, trying to get that little extra. And that time he tried so hard his hat fell off. He took an extremely long stride to the plate, and Torborg had to go up to get it. One and one to Harvey Keane. Now he's ready. Fastball high. Ball two. You can't blame a man for pushing just a little bit now. Sandy backs off, mops his fire, runs his left index finger along his fire, dries it off on his left pants leg. All the while, Keene just waiting. Now Sandy looks in. Into his windup and the 2-1 pitch to Keene. Swung on and missed. Strike two. It is 9.46 p.m. Two and two to Harvey Keene. One strike away. Sandy into his windup. Here's the pitch. Swung on and missed the perfect game.
1: now to be fair scully didn't always know best in fact when sandy koufax first was trying to break into the major leagues the announcer caught a glimpse of the young pitcher and well
3: i must be the worst baseball scout in the whole world and i'll tell you why has to do with koufax one ball and one strike the day that he was going to try out with the dodgers kind of a bleak saturday afternoon Game was over. I knew some kid was going to try out. And I thought, well, I've got nowhere to go. Single. I'll just uh, hang out in the ballpark and go watch this kid who was just about my age. So I went down to the clubhouse. I walked in. And I saw the fella who was going to try out. And my first thought was, no chance. Ball three. The reason I said no chance was because he had a suntan. I don't mean the so-called truck driver Suntan where only your forearms are tan because you're wearing a uniform. No, no. He was completely tan. He was, I thought, well, he spent all the time on the beach not playing baseball. So I waited and he put on the tryout uniform and went down to the right field corner in Ebbage Field, the bullpen. There were only a couple of people there to watch. Three, two pitch, fouled away and he threw pretty hard not any harder than uh, some of the guys i faced when i was trying to play ball in college and he bounced some curveballs and i thought well he's just a fella who they're taking a look at and spends his time on the beach and that'll be that i'll probably never see him again yeah right
1: way to go then now we could fill hours with calls from Vin scully but here on rtbs we only have the one Fast forward a few years, and there he happened to be calling the Dodgers game in Atlanta. As Henry Aaron, a superstar for the Atlanta Braves closing in on Babe Ruth's career home run record that night, had endured a torrent of racist abuse and death threats so serious, law enforcement was there that night in Fulton County Stadium.
2: Again, a standing ovation for Henry Aaron. So the confrontation for the second time. Aaron walked in the second inning. He means the tying run at the plate now. So we'll see what Downing does. Al at the belt, delivers, and he's low, ball one. And that just adds to the pressure. The crowd booing. Downing has to ignore the sound effects and stay a professional in pitches games. One ball and no strikes. Aaron waiting. The outfield deep and straight away. Fastball is a high drive into deep left center field. Buckner goes back to the fence. It is gone. State of Georgia, what a marvelous moment for the country and the world. A black man is getting a standing ovation in the Deep South for breaking a record of an all time baseball idol. And it is a great moment for all of us, and particularly for Henry Aaron, who was met at home plate not only by every member of the Braves, but by his father and mother. He threw his arms around his father. And as he left the home plate area, his mother came
1: running across the grass, threw her arms around his neck, kissed him for all she was worth. And then, well, there were moments of infamy. In 1972, outfielder Rick Monday joined the Chicago Cubs and first played the Dodgers. It was only after six years in the big leagues when the Dodgers came to Wrigley Field, Rick Monday remembers, to play the Cubs, that it had dawned on my mother, by golly my son's in the major leagues, because i just heard Vin Scully announce my son's name in the game. Well Rick Monday met Vin Scully while with the Cubs, the two united by fate, in that iconic moment when Monday, a former Marine, saved the American flag. On April 25th, 1976, the Los Angeles Dodgers were hosting a home game against the Chicago Cubs. When, as the bottom of the fourth inning began, two fans suddenly ran onto the field with an American flag, lighter fluid, and matches. I'm
2: not sure what he's doing out there. It looks like he's going to burn a flag, and Rick Monday runs and takes it away from him. And so Monday, Think a guy was going to set fire to the American flag? Can you imagine that? Well, they better lose him in a hurry. And Monday, when he realized what he was going to do, raced over and took the flag away from him.
1: You know, as great as Vin Scully was as a baseball announcer, he continued in the off-season to serve as a football play-by-play guy. Did you know that when CBS was looking for someone to pair with John Madden on Sunday NFL games, he was considered for the gig? Well, here's one reason. The catch. Perhaps the greatest play in NFL history, the 1981 NFC Championship game between the Dallas Cowboys and the San Francisco 49ers. And of course,
2: for the upstart 49ers, they're six yards away from Pontiac. Stick with 51 seconds left. Dwight Clark is 6'4. He stands about 10 feet tall in this crowd's estimation.
1: You know what though? CBS decided to pair John Madden up with Pat Summerall instead. Why? Because CBS said Vin Scully talked too much. Imagine. In 1983, Vin Scully was reintroduced to a generation of baseball fans across the country when he joined Joe Garagiola for the NBC Game of the Week, and we all just loved his catchphrase. One
2: away, first inning, no score, we're just starting up, so pull up a chair and spend part of Saturday with us.
1: You know, it's my little tip of the cap here at RTBS with every segment I do, pull up a chair and spend some time with us. Vin Scully actually had to hide with Joe Garagiola in 1984, lying down in the back seat of a car to hightail it out of Tiger Stadium and to safety, literally in the riotous moments after Detroit won the 1984 World Series and he'd called it for NBC. Oh, and if you're a baseball fan, casual or like me, passionately so, one call of Vin Scully's stands out. Game one of the 1988 World Series, the then powerful Oakland Athletics of Mark McGuire and Jose Canseco, they called them the Bash Brothers. The Dodgers, who by comparison were, well, let's be honest, more like the kids the Athletics would bully in gym class, except for one player. Kirk Gibson. He was a former football player himself at Michigan State who joined the Dodgers that season. Now, the Dodgers had a losing record the two previous years, and nobody expected that much of them in 1988, but through sheer force of will drove them into the series that year. Well, Kirk Gibson had been injured late in the season, and it didn't look like he'd even be able to play at all, what with two bad knees making it painful to walk. He growled to a coach, though, as he was warming up, I think I have one good swing. And so there it was in the bottom of the ninth inning with the Dodgers down, two outs, Kirk Gibson pinch hitting against the Athletics Hall of Fame pitcher Dennis Eckersley on to end a win.
3: And look who's coming up. All year long, they looked to him to light the fire. And all year long, he answered the demands until he was physically unable to start tonight with two bad legs, the bad left hamstring, and the swollen right knee. And with two out, you talk about a roll of the dice. This is it. If he hits the ball on the ground, I would imagine he would be running 50% to first base. So the Dodgers trying to catch lightning right now. Fouled away. He was, you know, complaining about the fact that with the left knee bothering him, he can't push off. Well, now he can't push off and he can't land. Four three A's, two out, ninth inning, not a bad opening act. Mike Davis, by the way, has stolen seven out of ten. If you're wondering about Lasorda throwing the dice again, oh, and one all the away again. You saw Dave Duncan gesturing. He was gesturing to Carney Lansford at third. Oh, and two to Gibson. The infield is back with two out and Davis at first. Now Gibson, during the year, not necessarily in this spot, but he was a threat to bunt. No way tonight. No wheels. No balls. Two strikes. Two out. Little number foul and it had to be an effort to run that far Gibson was so banged up he was not introduced he did not come out onto the field before the game it's one thing to favor one leg but you can't favor two 0 and 2 to Gibson and a throw down to first Davis just by Ron Hassey using Gibson as a screen. He took a shot at the runner, and Mike Davis didn't see it for that split second, and that made it close. And it's fouled away. So Mike Davis, who had stolen 7 out of 10 and carrying the tying run, was on the move. Gibson shaking his left leg, making it quiver like a horse, trying to get rid of a troublesome fly. 2 and 2. Mike Socia can only sit now and sweat it out. He let off the inning and popped up. Tony LaRusa is one out away from win number one. Two balls and two strikes with two out. There he goes. Way outside. He's stolen it. So Mike Davis, the tying run is at second base with two out. Now the Dodgers don't need the muscle of Gibson as much as a base hit. And on deck is the leadoff man, Steve Sachs. Three and two. Sachs waiting on deck, but the game right now is at the plate. High
2: fly ball into right. In a year that has been so improbable,
3: the impossible has happened.
1: Goodness. You know, we could just go through the years and find one great call after another from Ben Scully. Now for this baseball fan, if you'll indulge me, comes this one. From the 1985 National League Championship. The Dodgers hosting the St. Louis Cardinals. The Cardinals behind in the ninth inning and Jack Clark their feared slugger coming to the plate.
2: The tying and possible winning runs are in scoring position with two out and Jack Clark coming up. Meanwhile, in reading, was sort of talking about walk him and pitch to that blank, blank Van Slyke. That's what he just muttered in the dugout. Do I walk him and pitch to that so-and-so? He's not going to walk him. It is Jack Clark and Tom Needempure going head to head and the ball game on the line and the crowd on its feet. One way or another, what a way to end. And he hits one to deep left field and that one is gone.
1: Well, that sent then 17-year-old me running, screaming around our house, bursting out our front door and running and screaming outside. Now, we lived in the country, so the only creatures startled by the sight of this skinny kid causing such a ruckus were in the woods around our home. That was my favorite memory of Vin Scully. That's not why he was so beloved, though. See, baseball lends itself to conversation, to storytelling. And so to do so on the fly, to start an impromptu story while also describing the action on the field, weaving back and forth, Vin Scully did that better than anyone else. Anyone ever could, even his quick one-liners were poetry, Bob Gibson for example. He pitches as though he's double-parked. Andre Dawson has a bruised knee and is listed as day-to-day. Well in the end, aren't we all? You know, it's a mere moment in a man's life between the All-Star Game and an old-timers game. So yeah, I'd like to share some of those brief stories, some serious, some silly, some poignant. First, we start with the one time the Beatles played at Dodger Stadium.
3: And the first pitch to Segeden, one ball and no strikes. The Beatles were here on this day 50 years ago. We had 45,000 here. They were not allowed on the field and the performance started at 930. It was over at 10 Beatles performed 11 songs in 27 minutes. Two balls and no strikes (laughs) now back. The big thing and the story was what happened when the Beatles finished and were going to leave. They had a Lincoln Continental that was waiting to get them out of the ballpark and on the way to wherever they wanted to go. Ground ball to the right side going back to smother it is Zobrist and he can't do it. Ball gets away from him and Segeden is aboard and it'll be a base hit. So a leadoff single by Rob Sagadin. that'll bring up Yasmani Grandal. So the idea was the car with the Beatles would exit the ballpark and clear out. But the fans there must have been 10,000 kids waiting beyond the pavilion. And they were frenzied. They pulled off the car's hood ornaments, side mirrors. The car was stuck in a virtual sea of humanity. So they moved the car with the Beatles back out onto the field and went all the way back to the Dodger dugout. The Beatles jumped out and went back to the Dodger clubhouse trying to figure out a plan of escape. That's ball one to Grandall. So a new plan was devised. They used the armored car to depart as they used to arrive but someone had led the air out of the tires during the show and the car couldn't really work so they decided okay how to sneak the Beatles out and they got an ambulance here's the 1 0 pitch that's a little highball, ball 2 0 and the Beatles were put into the ambulance they were covered with blankets with lights flashing sirens blaring. The ambulance uh, seemed a reasonable bet to get through the crush of kids beyond center field. And the plan was once they got through the kids they would get out to the 76 station. They would get out of the ambulance into the armored car now with fully inflated tires. That's a strike two and one. Again something went wrong. The driver had navigated through the fans hit the gas and the ambulance ran over a speed bump. And would you believe the radiator fell out of the ambulance. <laughs> I mean, can you imagine the Beatles stranded in Dodger Stadium? Here's the 2-1 pitch to Yazbani Grandal. Fastball foul back. Well, that got that armored car to rescue them. The kids had figured out what was going on. And the armored car was surrounded by fans, unable to move in any direction. But suddenly the Beatles caught a break. From out of nowhere, the Hells Angels showed up, encircled the armored car, led the Beatles out of the parking lot and on out into the night.
1: What a story. Then there was Satchel Paige, the great pitcher who never got his shot at the majors because of the color of his skin, yet still created a legend for himself. Well, let's let Vin explain one tale.
3: The Miami Marlins were a triple-A minor league ball club Owned by Bill Veck. Yeah, the same Bill Veck. Strike one pitch on the way is off the plate. One of the things that uh, Bill Veck did as a promotion, he signed Satchel Paige, who was very close to being 50 years old, and still pitched very well in AAA. The 1-1 pitch, Gonzalez doesn't get it on a big swing, 1-2. and two. On that ball club back in 1956 was Whitey Herzog, now a Hall of Fame manager. But Whitey was an outfielder. And they were playing in Rochester, New York, and Herzog was out in the outfield, and he noticed a promotional thing in the Rochester ballpark. The 1 2 pitch fouled away. There was a hole in the fence in center field, and above it was a sign if you hit the ball in the air through the hole, you get $10,000. So Herzog went back into the clubhouse, got a bunch of balls, went out to center field, and tried to throw a ball through the hole and he couldn't do it the one-two pitch on the way is a ground foul so then when he went back in before the game started Whitey was talking to Satchel Paige he said Satch you see that hole out there in center field and Paige said yes wild child he said I'll bet you a a bottle of bourbon that you can't throw the ball through that hole the one-two pitch inside ball two So the next day, before batting practice, Herzog had a bunch of balls, and he took Satchel Paige out. Herzog marched off 60 feet, inches from the hole. The next pitch, foul back. He gave Satchel Paige the ball, and Satchel said, Wild child, does the ball fit through the hole? And Whitey Herzog said, Satchel, it sure does. He said, then you have a bet. So he held the ball up and looked over the ball like he was aiming a rifle. 2-2 pitch, and Adrian pulls it foul. Now, Page winds up and throws. The ball goes into the hole, spins around, and pops out again. And Herzog thinks, holy mackerel, he'll never come any closer to that. Page picks up the next ball, aims right through the hole, clean as a whistle. He said, wild charge! I will take that, and walked off the field. For the Miami Marlins and Bill Beck and Sancho Page, my thanks to Adrian Gonzalez for fouling off all those pitches as he strikes out. And we have one down here in the bottom of
1: the third inning. So you know how young boys like to pull pranks? Vin Scully was no different.
3: Funny, the memory, every time I say Albert, I think that when I and many others were kids many years ago and not talking about fat Albert whom a lot of people certainly remember it was a dumb thing to do but kids do dumb things although it was harmless we would call a tobacco store and say do you have Albert in a can you know there was Prince Albert right kids would say do you have Albert in a can and the guy say yes I do and we'd say would you please let him out and we'd hang up we've lost a nickel and we thought it was hysteric and for some reason when I say Albert I'm not thinking of the great pool am thinking of being about 11 years old 2 and 1 the count boy Albert's long been out of the can he's got 40 home runs last year an all-timer on his way to the
1: Hall of Fame snakes how about a couple of snake stories? Don't shudder at the thought, here's Vin with a couple.
3: You know, Bumgarner tells a story which, in a sense, reminds you of what it takes to be a big-league ball player. It's two years ago in spring training, and he and his wife were roping cattle, which is what they do. 1-1 one, one pitch, sinker low, ball two, two and 2-1. And they were startled by a large snake, and Madison thought it was a rattlesnake, so he grabbed an axe. And he hacked the snake to pieces. But there's something more to the story. 2-1 pitch. Low ball three. Three and one. When his wife Allie and an expert field dresser examined what was left of the snake. She found two baby jackrabbits inside pieces of the snake. And extracted them. 3-1 pitch to Turner way inside ball four. And after she extracted them a short while later. The Bumgarners noticed that one of the rabbits had moved slightly. It was alive. Well, his wife brought the rabbit back to their apartment. For the next few days, they kept it warm, bottle-nursed it, and the rabbit soon was healthy enough that they released it into the wild. And Madison said, just think about how tough that rabbit was. First, it gets eaten by a snake. Then the snake gets chopped to pieces. Then it gets picked up by people and lives. It's all true. Meanwhile, line drive base hit to center by Hendrick. And the Dodgers are in business. First and second and nobody out. So I guess really the morale to the whole story about the rabbit and the snake. You've got to somehow survive. You've got to somehow battle back. A lesson well taught for all of us. I remember one time the Dodgers playing the Houston Astros I don't know how many years ago it was. But one of the prankster Dodgers found a small snake maybe in his own backyard maybe it was in Brooklyn and they were leaving their gloves out on the field. And whoever the player was in going to his position he put that little snake in the shortstop's glove two and one and that's popped up. Tomlinson, the second baseman, no snake in his glove. Two down. I don't really have to tell you much more, do I? I mean, the fella 16, goes out to take over the position, picks up the glove, goes to put his hand in the glove.
1: So modern baseball players these days like to wear beards. They, they really do. During one game, Vin decided to take a moment from the action to think about that.
3: I'm not going to do it now because there's two out and the base is empty. But sometime during the game, if you've been like the way I have been, looking at players with these big beards, I decided I'm going to do a little research on beards. So during the game, yeah, there's plenty of them around. We'll tell you a couple of stories as we go through it. Two down, second inning, no score. And first pitch, fastball, first strike. First of all, they say way back to the dawn of humanity. Beards evolved, number one, because ladies like them. And number two, it was the idea of frightening off adversaries and wild animals. There's the one strike pitch, swung on and missed strike two. In fact, it was so serious, if you look it up, there's a divine mandate for beards in Leviticus and Deuteronomy. No balls and two strikes, they count. Stripling from the first base side of the rubber. Strike two pitch to Norris is promptly hit into right field and it lands in front of Kike for a base hit. So Norris, a two out single to right, and that will bring up Jemile Weeks. Weeks. There became a time where Greek dramatists mind the popular prejudice against clean-shaven men. Back then, clean-shaven men will look just the, oh, maybe effeminate. And then along came Alexander the Great. That's another story. Alexander the Great was not only great, but he also thought he was the greatest-looking man in the world. Oh, absolutely. Stripling ready, delivers, gets a strike. And... Alexander the Great said there is no reason to cover up my beautiful face with a beard. And so all of a sudden it started to disappear. I love the idea that he felt he was so beautiful. One bl- one strike. Stripling ready looks over at Norris back to the hitter and that's lined into left field for a base hit. Norris goes to second. So back to back base hits with two out. And the batter will be Adam Rosales. After Alexander the Great wanted clean-shaven people, it got so that the University of Paris banned long-bearded men from the lecture halls. That's back in 1533. And a few years later, the city's chief court outlawed beards on judges and advocates. And then you got to be the Russian strongman who liked a shaved face but long wigs. The first pitch in for a strike. Did you know that the first woman female king of Egypt wore a fake beard to convince people that she was a man? Yeah, her name was Hathsput. Here's the strike one pitch on the way. Stripling's pitch in the dirt. Throw down to Utley. Not in time. One ball and one strike to count. Then, of course, you come to Abraham Lincoln, who was clean shaven. And a little 11-year-old girl named Grace Bidell, she said to Mr. Lincoln, if you would grow a beard, my daddy has a beard and my mother will tease him to vote for you. So Abraham Lincoln grew a beard. And, of course, that came up when uh, his chief rival said to him, you're two-faced. And Abraham Lincoln said, if I were two-faced, would I have the face that I'm wearing now? So he answered him pretty well. Two and one account. Stripling in a little trouble here. The 2-1 pitch on the way is taken for a strike two and two. In 1976 the Supreme Court ruled that Americans do not have a legal right to grow beards or mustaches as they choose if their employer demands a clean face. Ah, yes, the
1: beards. And sometimes he'll tell a story maybe you didn't know about a player, such as outfielder Johnny Gomes.
3: Johnny, to make the understatement of the day, has had a very tough life. We can give you maybe one or two stories. We don't want to get into too much of the privacy area. Let's start when he was 12, he was doing work on his grandmother's house. And a hired hand showed up with a wolf on a leash here's the 2-0 pitch two on one anyway Johnny loved dogs he had never owned one though he had no idea about how serious a wolf might be so he walked up to the wolf and the man hollered at him no it's a real wolf don't pet it the 2-1 pitch in yeah well the man ties up the wolf goes around the corner to men defense and Johnny goes back to the wolf Saying something like, Oh, I'll talk to him and it'll be great. And the wolf attacks him, has knocked him down on his chest, just about ready to devour him. 2 2 pitch, check swing, no swing, ball three. Johnny suddenly, totally and completely relaxed. He was done, he knew it. And whatever he did by relaxing, the wolf decided, Uh huh, I don't have a rival here. And the wolf, got off his chest. Johnny got up and walked away. Brown ball by the diving Turner and the base hit by Johnny Gomes. So a one-out single left by the Wolfman.
1: Mike Matheny, then the St. Louis Cardinals manager, reached a crossroads in his life. And Bird Poof guided him to where he is now. Bottom of the second
3: inning, no score, and the subject is Mike Matheny. Matheny, 44 years old come the end of September, born in Ohio, lives in Missouri. But he was not even 18 years old, and he came to the University of Michigan with a major league dilemma. Earlier that summer, the Toronto Blue Jays had drafted a catching prospect in the 31st round, but Matheny decided to honor his college commitments, but he had a lot of doubts getting drafted was a dream come true and if he waited till later on the next time the offer would be less or not forthcoming at all so he was a young man not 18 and a lot of pressure should I turn pro or go to college Major League Baseball rules allow players to sign with teams up until the player officially enters college full-time that's the key full-time anyway Matheny showered, ready to go to class for the first day, walked out of the dormitory, stomach knotted, and a pigeon defecated directly on his head. Now, conventional wisdom would suggest the bird bombing was a sign that he should hit the road, but Matheny had to go back and clean up the pitch to Uribe, a strike, 0-1 the count. He went back and showered and cleaned up and decided all of a sudden he was at peace. I'm going to stay here. I'm going to go to college. And there was one other thing that happened. The strike one pitch swung on and missed 0 and 2. Matheny went to his first class. And when he reached class, he noticed a pretty field hockey player named Kristen. And he would marry her and live happily ever after. And that's the story of Mike Matheny and the bird pool. (laughs)
1: Finally though, Dodgers fans and the rest of us had to let Vin Scully go in 2016. And wouldn't you know it, the players whose feats on the field he described had their own special way of saying goodbye.
3: So Justin Turner, kind of in a strange spot, hitting number two, are they waving up here? Oh that's terrific, holy mackerel. I saw Justin I thought, oh he's waving to someone in the fans, but then I realized Kendrick did the same thing first pitch in for a strike oh and one the count so I really appreciate it I don't know who planned it or who started it at first I thought that uh, Kendrick was waving to his family and then I saw Turner waving and then fellas in the booth saying no they're waving to you we took off his hat Adrian did and now here's Kike second and third now
1: imagine the poor announcer for the dodgers now who had to take vin scully's place behind the microphone well that was joe davis who has served as the dodgers play-by-play man for the past few years and like vin scully did so many times was tabbed to call the world series for joe davis it'll be his first time in 2022 well vin scully had some advice for joe
0: i asked him one time what is what's your advice for those big moments How do you handle those? How do you nail them every time? And he said, you've got to think of it like this. Picture your house is burning down. I'm like, wow, Vin, okay. (laughs) That's kind of a morbid place to go. (laughs) Three and two on Trace Thompson. I said, okay, I'm with you. My house is burning down. He said, if your house is burning down and you start freaking out, your heart rate goes high, you're probably not getting the cat out. So you've got to take a deep breath. Be calm, and you're probably going to get everybody out safe. I said, okay, so what I think you're saying is you get to these big moments, you got to just breathe, right? And he said, yeah, you got to think of it like you're one of the players, right? If their heart starts going crazy, probably not going to perform. So I was trying to think about that, too, because he always nails those big moments, which in this job, you're judged by how you handle those and the more calm you can be, the better. That's advice that Vin passed on. But then
1: there was the one time Vin Scully didn't quite follow his own advice when the house was burning down. Now, if you're a baseball fan, you didn't think we'd forgotten this one, did you? Time was when the Boston Red Sox played the New York Mets in the 1986 World Series. It was the 10th inning of game six. The Red Sox leading five to three, three outs away from ending a decades long championship dry spell. The Mets, the best team in the majors in 1986, about to go down in ignominious defeat. But the Mets climbed out of their hole with two outs, getting base hit after base hit. Then a wild pitch to tie the game at five all, and with the Mets, Mookie Wilson at the plate. So the winning run
3: is at second base with two out, three and two to Mookie Wilson. Little roller up along first.
2: Behind the bag! It gets through Buckner! Here comes Knight, and the Mets
4: win it!
1: And now that we've heard perhaps the greatest call in baseball history, it's time to let the man say goodbye to us.
3: You know friends, so many people have wished me congratulations on a 67 year career in baseball and they have wished me a wonderful retirement with my family. And now all I can do is tell you what I wish for you. May God give you for every storm a rainbow, for every tear a smile, for every care a promise and a blessing in each trial. And when the upcoming winter gives way to spring, rest assured, once again, it will be time for Dodger baseball. So this is Vin Scully wishing you a very pleasant good afternoon wherever you may be.
1: You know, he never seemed to understand what the fuss about him was all about. He stashed Jolly Ranchers in his glasses case to keep his mouth moist between innings. He kept his own scorebook, writing the starters' names in blue ink and relievers in red, and when he told those stories during his broadcasts, he'd turn in his chair so he could share them face-to-face with his director. And in the moments before his mic went live, he would gather himself with a deep, quiet breath. As we end our hour together here on RTBS, We want to let Vin Scully share with you a song he'd serenaded on her birthday each year to his wife, Sandy, with whom they'd had a big Irish family of five children, 21 grandchildren, and six great-grandchildren. How he said goodbye to all those thousands of fans at Dodger Stadium in his last home game. I'm Michael Fouch, your host for the last special hour here on the Radio Talking Book Service, Thank you once again for inviting us into your home today.
0: The preceding special program was a presentation of the Radio Talking Book Service in Omaha, Nebraska.